Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, and as always, I'm here with three of the biggest stories that the Empire Center has been following over the past few weeks. We've got a big episode today, so let's dive right in. The most recent enacted budget financial plan shows that state expenses will exceed revenues by $9.1 billion in fiscal year 2025, and they'll grow to more than $13 billion in fiscal 26 and 27. Now, this gap has widened beyond original estimates for two reasons. One, the just-adopted state budget hiked spending $2 billion per year above what Governor Hochul originally proposed. And two, tax receipts have wound up being significantly lower than they were originally forecast. That enacted budget financial plan also included some key information on Medicaid and other state health programs. The state is now expecting $63.7 billion in federal support for Medicaid and the other programs, which is higher than the previous fiscal year. The state did not, however, receive matching funds for the promised state health care worker bonuses, which means that the state will pay the entire costs of these promised bonuses between 2023 and 2025. But we'll close with some good news. A bill that passed both the State Assembly and the Senate at the end of the legislative session could represent a breakthrough in hospital pricing transparency. The legislation calls for the state-run employee health plan to annually publish the details of its spending on hospital care, which is the predominant driver of rising health costs nationwide. Now, this report will document the prices that individual hospitals charge for various services, which is basic information that consumers and policymakers need but is often hidden from public view. So there it is, three of the big stories these past two weeks. Now I'll turn it over to Tim Hofer with an exciting interview with U.S. Representative Nicole Maliotakis. All right, this is Messages of Necessity. I'm Tim Hofer, and today we're joined by Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis. Congresswoman in her second term in Congress represents Staten Island and parts of Southern Brooklyn. Uh, but before Washington, she served five terms in the New York State Assembly, which makes her an interesting catch for today's episode as we talk about the state and the Fed's reactions to COVID, what we have to learn and what we have to do. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So a few weeks ago, um, I had the pleasure to watch and you were there to do uh, to question some experts around the state's response, specifically certain orders given by the former governor here in New York um, and the reaction to different aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, really thinking about that March of 2020 time. Um, that was at a special, I think I've got this right, a special meeting of the Congressional Select Subcommittee focused on the pandemic response in states. Um, so, and, and then there are others happening. I, you just said that there's one tomorrow and there have been others where lots of people have sort of weighed in on what's happened. The feds have done a lot on this. What's the goal um, for these hearings from your perspective? Well, the goal is to learn from what occurred over the last few years. Uh, number one, to ensure that we prevent another pandemic in the future. Uh, number two, if another pandemic does occur, it will be better prepared. And so sort of looking at this from a holistic viewpoint, but also digging deep into some of the policies that were put in place by states, by federal government, uh, to see 
what can be what can be improved for the future. I think we can learn a lot from this. Um, obviously, uh, the pandemic came out of nowhere, and we didn't expect something like this to just happen. Um, and you know, wh whether it's just making sure we have the supply chain, making sure that we have uh, a stockpile for uh, goods, making sure that we have smart policies in place, uh, the CDC guidelines, all of that uh, in a way that helps uh, move the country along throughout a crisis of that magnitude. But I think the other thing is to really prevent it from happening. In order to prevent it from happening, we need to know how it started, where it started, uh, what, who was involved in it, um, and how it was unleashed on the, on, on the world. Uh, I think one of the things that we've been digging, digging deep into in, in this year that we hadn't done over the last two years when we were in the minority is the origins of the virus. Uh, we uncovered a lot of interesting things at our first hearing. Um, we, you know, had uh, somebody testify before us uh, that, um, Basically, they were saying that the U.S. was um, looking at um, ways of doing gain-of-function research as well, that some funding had gone to, to that. Um, but all of the evidence really pointed to the Wuhan lab, and that's the distinction. For so long, we were being told that this was done uh, in a natural origin uh, way, that this was uh, animals uh, that, that were transmitted this virus. It turns out that mounting evidence shows otherwise that it was actually manufactured in the Wuhan lab. And then the question becomes, did you know any of our tax dollars have a role in that? Because we know that some of US tax dollars were given to the EcoHealth Alliance from NIH and then was uh, given to the Wuhan lab. So it, it begs a lot of questions that we, we have to make sure that this never happens and that would mean prohibiting that type of funding, number one, to the Wuhan lab uh, in the future, uh, but also question whether we should be involved in gain function, particularly at a place where we would think it would be sub subpar conditions uh, and, and other things. So, you know, that, that investigation is slowly unraveling, but I think it, it really does, um, to this point, show that it was manufactured in a lab versus that original nat natural origin, which so many including Dr. Fauci and others, had been, you know, insisting that that was the case. That, so there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, um, as you already know. So primarily, I, I think what really I find fascinating about this is the idea that we want to bring all of this out in the open. And so whether it's where it came from, how it got there, what the involvement of the U.S. and federal or state governments was, um, what the state's reactions, what the Fed's reactions were, how we handled it, and everything moving forward over the course of the entire lifespan of this thing. And I think you've done a really good job of digging in on the, let's start by making it open. What happened? Let's get to the bottom of all of these individual pieces. So we appreciate that work. Um, certainly from my perspective, I've been working on sort of open government transparency issues in New York for 15 years. So I, I get that and I really respect it. As we take this to the next level, so so you guys are focused already on, on multiple pieces of this and certainly on the on finding out the origins and being able to prevent that from happening again. I think we've done separately work in, in a different area, which is trying to get to the bottom. And you talked about this initially. The first was, um, you know, and worth disclaiming here that states and the feds did good stuff and bad stuff in the initial response. And of course, 
like you said, this came out of nowhere. We didn't know it was coming that hadn't been prepared for in a lot of ways. Um, so there is a lot to learn. There's things that New York did well and things that New York did poorly. There's things that Pennsylvania did well and Pennsylvania did poorly. And so until you really do a full dive into all of those pieces of it, it's hard to know and be better prepared for the next time. Because of course, there's going to be a next time of something, right? And so it would be a huge missed opportunity, certainly from our perspective, to not learn as much as we can right now. And I think that's what these these um, the, the hearings that you all are holding are trying to get to the bottom of, right? Um, so in thinking about that in the way that the states have responded and specifically on New York, if you want, um, what are you finding that surprises you both good and bad to this point? Yeah, I, th I, th I think you're right. Uh, a lot of this is about looking at what are the best practices, right? And um, in the very beginning of COVID, uh, many people applauded Governor Cuomo for his leadership, for taking control of the situation, from having his daily briefings, making sure people were informed that they had the latest data. Um, and so from, a, from being a, a good communicator, uh, from, from someone who is in a position of leadership to the constituency, I thought New York State did it well. The problem... Uh, well, and, that, and to that point, I mean, that was sort of, that resounded across the country, right? Because it wasn't just New Yorkers who latched onto the Cuomo's, Cuomo's handling of this, it was everybody. And so I, I think that's a point worth validating is that they did do a good job there, right? Of getting out and saying, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. Yeah, in the beginning, I felt that was the case. It, yeah. it became later on where I felt that this sort of evolved into, you know, I'm doing what's best for my state to keep my constituents informed, getting them the information, best information possible, showing leadership, showing that you have thoughts on, on how we can deal with some of the challenges. So then it became almost like a it was, it was almost like it was more, then it became more about like power and ego and, and books and, you know, and then you got into misinformation later on when we talk about like the nursing homes, for example, it was a perfect example where clearly they weren't being transparent anymore. They were reporting numbers that were, were not accurate. And in fact, I, I applaud your organization, the Empire Center for going to court to try to get that information public, which it did, um, and it showed a major discrepancy, right, between what the public was told and what was um, the actual facts. So I, I think it's almost like an odd thing that we, we wrote, you know, we, we, we went through during that. Um, of course, I also had a lot of disagreements in some of the policies with regards to mandates. Um, I had been very critical of vaccine mandates, although I was, you know, vaxxed myself and I had held pop-ups to help my constituents get access to the vaccine. Um, it was, I didn't feel that it was something that should be tied to your livelihood. And I was critical of, you know, NYPD and other agencies, um, firing people, right. Because they were, they chose not to be vaccinated. That's something you didn't see in many other States. Um, also the vaccine passports, you know, you need to be vaccinated in order to go to a restaurant. Uh, I, I didn't like that concept. I thought it was very discriminatory. Uh, and it really shut out people from, uh, participation in our society. Um, and then there were, of course, the mandates that were put on small businesses that made it very difficult. And if you compare, you know, Florida, which was open throughout the entire pandemic, almost, right? I mean, you know, of course they had, you know, they also shut down in the very beginning stages, but they opened 
right away. Schools and businesses, uh, people seem to be having, you know, being back to normal life. We're here in New York. We were still, you know, subjected to all these regulations. Our, our, our youth missed out on so much social education um, and, 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 and other assistance in schools because they were shut down for so long. So, the, you know, there's a lot of a lot, a lot of different things that had happened here. I think the, at the end of the day, the goal of the committee should be to evaluate what were the best practices and, and put those forward in some type of uh, report which we can access. But I think the other thing is, you know, we need to be prepared, right? And that means stockpiles. You know, I thought what, what Governor Cuomo had done with the ventilators and uh, trying to increase New York stockpile was, was creative. Uh, but then you get into the question of, well, gee, why were we paying $13, you know, for a, for a uh, was it COVID test versus, you know, state of California? So what was going on there? So there's a lot of questions that that raises as well, particularly when you found out that, you know, one of those, those, those individuals we were purchasing these tests from happened to be a, one of Governor Hochul's biggest donors. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things there that need to still be unpacked. I think for our committee's purposes, because look, we, we have a state legislature, we have attorney general, they should be really drilling down on if there was any other nefarious actions that were there. For our perspective, it, it has to be with relations to the federal government, right? Um, our national stockpile, federal funding going to gain-of-function research, um, and, not, and not just NIH funding, by the way, we're talking about uh, department of uh, state, uh, Department of State, Department of Defense. Uh, there were, so there were other, USA, there are other entities that have come out in our hearings that federal dollars that had most likely got, went to the uh, Wuhan lab. Uh, CDC guidance, were states following the CDC guidance properly? There's this big question about New York and the way they handled nursing homes. And this is one of the issues that I brought up. Um, you know, the, the nursing home, and we can go into that more. I'm sure you have, you have questions about that specifically, but it's clear to me that the, the state did not follow the CDC guidance. They were not supposed to put individuals who are elderly and vulnerable and COVID positive in nursing homes or people, I should just say, in nursing homes if they were positive with the most vulnerable without making sure that the nursing home had the ability to care for them, meaning they could quarantine them, separate them. They had PPE. That was one of the big things in New York. We did not have the PPE for the nursing homes. And, and local guys like me were trying to scrape together boxes of, of masks and gloves and cleaning supplies and deliver them to those nursing homes because the state had this mandate without giving them the proper tools to allow them to do the job. Well, that's, I mean, so there are two things there. I, th I think you've made an important distinction between what you're trying to do with the subcommittee hearings and what the state should be doing but isn't right is that you're you're diving in on 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 everything related to the federal government's reaction to this which includes cdc guidance and how that's implemented at the state level um peter and daniel arbini who i know you know were on the show a couple episodes ago and we heard from their perspective about the nursing home order and of course their father tragically died um and they attribute it in part to being in a nursing home for a period of time where he contracted covid um so yeah, we want to look at those things and not necessarily from a gotcha standpoint, right? This isn't about necessarily pointing fingers. It's about knowing the next time this happens, how did the pieces move on the chessboard that led to this thing happening? 
was it nefarious? Was it an accident? Were the guidelines unclear? What, you know, what were all the pieces of this that we couldn't see in real time, but we can go back now and start looking at. And so you guys are handling that. The state is not, which is interesting. And I said before, the governor, Governor Hochul has commissioned a commission to look at this and it has a tiny budget. It doesn't have subpoena power and it's not going to do what you and I are talking about, which is really dig in on every piece of this because A, we deserve the answers and and B, it needs to get done so we don't end up here again. So thinking about your time in the state legislature, what are all the obstacles to getting that done? I mean, why, you know, there's a bill um, uh, that was introduced in the assembly this year. We thought maybe it would get introduced in the Senate this year, but hopefully next year, creating this, like the broader, bigger commission that's gonna have the real power. What's blocking that from happening? Because the the farther away we get from the emergency, the harder it's going to be to figure these things out. Is it that simple? Yeah, well, look, I think there's obviously a lot of politics probably behind why this bill can't uh, get a, a, a sponsor in the Senate, but also why it just can't come up for a vote and be implemented and why there isn't a commission with teeth put in place. Um you know, it's 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 interesting, uh, and in being a state legislator, I think that uh, there's always been that challenge of getting transparency, getting data, uh, you know, getting getting the facts to support changes. Um, I think that still is true, and that that is part of the challenge. Um, and then again, you wonder uh, what. What are they trying to cover up in a sense? Uh, the fact that you have to go to court to fight to get the data for, and you know, I've gone through this myself with, with the Port Authority when I was trying to sue, just, I had to sue the Port Authority just to get the data on where our toll money was going. Um, and, and you know, this is the type of thing that government is good at. They always try to hide this information. I've been always been somebody who has been um, a seeker of transparency, I've always supported those types of bills that you know shine light onto this information because without having that in, without having transparency, you don't have accountability. And if all this stuff is sort of being brushed under the rug, the the decisions that were made, the conversations that led up to the decisions that were made with regards to the nursing home policy, we need to get to the bottom of that. Uh, we have repeatedly asked, Governor Cuomo to provide that information. Uh, for two years, it was, you guys are in the minority in Congress. You have no subpoena power. You don't matter. I don't need to talk to you. Now we, we are in the majority. We do have subpoena power. And so we are trying again. And, you know, we are currently negotiating, uh, you know, hopefully a, a, that he will come and testify before our committee and we will be able to get some of that information. Uh, if they, if they continue to stonewall, you know, when you show um, effectively that you are, they are not complying with these requests, then you can invoke subpoena power. So I think this is, you know, it, it is unfortunately a time-consuming uh, process. Uh, there's a lot of legalities to it. Uh, it. Makes it a little complex and frustrating, quite frankly, because we've been talking about this now for this is going on the third year. We can't seem to get the information that we need um, to see exactly what was done. At the state level and at the federal level, and so um, you know, it's it's um, it's it it really is um, it really is frustrating. I don't know what else to say other than it's really I share the frustrations of the public because um, this information has to get out there. 
All right. We owe it to the families, the thousands of families who lost loved ones in those nursing homes. As why, even when they had alternatives, right? The Javits Center, the U.S. Comfort Ship, South Beach Psychiatric Center on Staten Island. Why, when they had those alternatives set up, they still continued this policy? It makes absolutely no sense, and we need to know the reasons why. I, I I jokingly refer to I have two teenage sons and I won't out which one it is, but one of them has a bad habit of putting his phone into his pocket every time my wife or I walk into the room. And my response is always, it looks like you're trying to hide something from me. So if you're not doing anything wrong, don't act guilty, which is sort of the same thing you're saying, right? Like if you don't have anything to hide and you think you've acted in a in a in an appropriate way. Come talk to us about this. Even if you were playing a game of gotcha and you don't have anything to hide, there's nothing to get. There's a lot for us to learn. There's a lot, as you said, for, to unpack about how this all went down and, and, and really looking forward, providing closure certainly for the families, but also being able to prevent something like this from happening again and make sure we have good systems. Um, I know you have to go. We really appreciate the time. Maybe we'll do a follow-up on this again as we get through some of your processes and, and get some action moving on these things. Um, but in the interim, good luck. Thanks for doing this work. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll see you soon. Well, look, I appreciate your time. It's great to be with you. And, and let's not also forget that Governor Kathy Holcomb made a campaign promise that she was going to provide information. She was going to be transparent. And so that's the other interesting stonewalling we'll see now post-election. Uh, so hopefully she'll respond to our questions. Our committee wrote a letter uh, in May. Uh, the, the, we're supposed to get that information this month in June. We'll see what happens. Uh, but we'll, we'll continue to push to, to get answers for families. All right. And we'll keep paying attention. So more to come on that. All Thanks, right. Congresswoman. Thank you. Take care. Welcome back. For this section of the podcast, we are welcoming on Ian Kingsbury, an adjunct fellow with the Empire Center, who recently wrote a report on absenteeism in the state of New York. So, Ian, I'm very excited to talk to you about this today. Um, give us a little bit of background. Why did you decide this was important to look into? Uh, you know, anecdotally, there's been a lot of uh, concerns raised about the, the state of student attendance in the wake of COVID. Uh, a lot of teachers commenting that uh, students just aren't attending school with the same regularity that they were beforehand. Uh, and there's even been, you know, some research reports and, and data around this confirming as much. Uh, and this appears to be a, a countrywide phenomenon um, that uh, students are just not attending school with the same regularity that they did before COVID. Uh, we knew this was true in New York City, but um, no one had done any sort of granular data analysis on this. So I wanted to drill down a little bit, look beyond just the baseline numbers that were being reported and, and get really a better understanding of what's going on on the ground, who are these kids who's missing school, and, and start so, to understand hopefully how we fix this. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you looked into and what you found. So uh, I was disaggregating results by student characteristics. So things like uh, grade level, or the borough that they reside in, or uh, their their demographic profile. So generally, the pattern is things that were observed about achievement during COVID. That is that the largest negative impacts were in the most disadvantaged groups. 
So uh, economically disadvantaged students or uh, black or Hispanic students, they they now are really sort of an acute crisis. Um, just uh, you know, very um, you know, very troubling levels of of daily attendance and, and chronic absenteeism. Yeah, and as we already know, those are the groups in particular that have the largest achievement gaps. Really, were already at risk. Um, so it's really a shame to hear that what you found is those are the groups that are impacted the most uh, by chronic absenteeism. So tell us a little bit, how does New York define chronic absenteeism? How much school is a student missing if they are chronically absent? Great question. There, there's not a, a national standard for this, uh, which is kind of a shame because then it makes it hard to compare. For mm-hmm. New York, uh, their definition is 10% of the school year, which is 18 days of school. And so that is, I think, by any measure, an enormous amount of time. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's it's only reasonable to conclude that a student who's missing at least 10% of the school year is not possibly absorbing absorbing all of the information that they need to be absorbing. Um, yeah. And so really, that's sort of a, a, a very conservative threshold. I mean, that, you know, uh, to me, it would be concerning if students were missing eight days of school per year, but we're talking about, uh, you know, half the student body missing 18 or more days per year. It's just an enormous number to comprehend. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the consequences that we know for sure are an outcome of being chronically absent? Yeah. So you'll hear a lot of really scary and dramatic numbers thrown out there, like missing X number of days with school is associated with, you know, two years of learning loss or something like that. Uh, And I think it's important, first of all, to understand that this is a case of correlation is not causation. Uh, It's not random who misses school. It's correlated things probably with things like socioeconomic status or how engaged the parents are or the child's own attitudes about school or or ambitions for the future. Um, so we can't just observe those correlations and say, here's what's going to happen because kids are now missing X amount of days per school. The reality is it's hard to know. It's hard to isolate what that causal number might be. Uh, so instead, I think we can just sort of defer to theory here. We have a theory that more school is good and that missing school is harmful. So I think even without being able to perfectly isolate or identify what that causal impact is, we can all agree that missing 10% of the school year is is a very suboptimal outcome. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Were there any particular areas of New York that were impacted the hardest or anything particularly shocking that you found when you were looking into the raw numbers? Yeah, so uh, by borough, the uh, the worst attendance rates are in the Bronx, uh, and this this just tracks with the larger story of whether it's attendance or achievement. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, the worst outcomes we see are in the most uh, socioeconomically depressed areas. So uh, the Bronx was the worst off, but uh, you know, frankly, it's not like any other borough had any reason to be celebrating. You know, they were all still. Uh, in an acute state of crisis, just to varying degrees. Yeah, and uh, as you mentioned, it, it does seem like the areas that had the highest rates of absenteeism, we do see low rates of achievement, and especially the largest achievement gaps for these these marginalized groups. So, yeah, it does seem like it, it is a complex issue. Like you said, nothing is isolated. So, moving forward, I mean, what what do you think? Can anything be done about this? 
Yeah, I, good question. Uh, you know, I think first we have to sort of acknowledge how we got here, um, which is that obviously there were some effects of school closures and just normalization of the idea of not coming to school. I think was really harmful. I mean, for, you know, for many kids, it never registered of like, oh, I could just not go to school. Uh, and so that's a very hard thing to unwind. Um, there are other issues at play too, I think. Uh, one is just obviously safety. Uh, it's a major, it's a major issue in New York city right now. It's a major issue within New York city public schools. Uh, you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And, you know, first and foremost, kids do need to feel safe. Uh, and if they don't, they might not come to school. So that, you know, that really needs to be sorted out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing is uh, expectations and standards. I mean, you know, I think a thing, one of the things that we need to look into next is for these students, let's say these students who are in 12th grade who are missing 10% of the school year, how many of them are graduating? Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll guess it's a strong majority. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so unfortunately. Just going out into the world, having missed so many days of school, what are they going out into the world with? Exactly. The permission structure is there at this point for them to miss that school and not suffer consequences for it. Yes. Um, at least, you know, immediate consequences. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, I think those three factors are are how we got here in terms of, you know, how do we fix this moving forward? One, as I alluded to, uh, safety, you know, these like these kids need to feel safe coming to school and that it's going to require greater effort and, and greater discipline, quite frankly, especially for, um, you know, for students who are threatening the physical safety of other students. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of standards, this has been, as you well know, and you've been documenting, this is a problem across the board in the city and the state. Uh, there are such low standards for, for student behavior and for student performance that, um, you know, again, they're they're practically inviting students to do this. Yeah, it does seem to always come down to the underlying framework, standards and incentives at play that at the end of the day are either going to benefit or hurt students, yep. as we see when we really look into the numbers the way that you did. So I thank you for diligently looking into this and offering the nuanced perspective here today. I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Messages of Necessity. Don't forget to subscribe and like wherever you get your podcasts. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.